she for example has cleaned the church toilets for most of her life it's a thing that she does she used to polish the whole of the church the every bit of it every week for nothing and the presbytery because but specifically the toilets and when I asked her why she did it again, I said why do you do that every week mum she said well nobody else would do it she said and and when I die he'd always want someone who's you know I'm good at cleaning the toilets <laughs> and then he'll always want someone who can do that won't he Welcome to Getting Better Acquainted Live. Five conversations recorded in November 2012 in a glass house in Wapping, in front of small audiences. There'll be a different conversation every day this week, and next week there'll be a two part GBA 100 special. That's right. Getting Better Acquainted has had a hundred standard episodes plus these five live episodes and quite a few extras. Getting Better Acquainted Live are conversations that did happen live but they have been slightly edited before broadcast. They feature five very different live experiences Lots of different people get involved in the conversation from the audiences to multiple guests, but they're also focused and powerful and just a great experience. I think they capture not just a conversation, but a week in a location, a time and a place. Hope you enjoy it. It's autumn, isn't it? So I think... The heater is just one of these things that reminds people this is really happening in a moment. We've established that there's a heater in the room. Yes. Yes. We'll start we'll with go. The people listening will just have to deal. Wow, it, wow it's, it has got very loud. <laughs> it's a bit of the frequency of there. Turn it up. Yeah. Okay, well, we'll turn it back on again if it gets cold. Yeah. yeah. My, my throat is, is usefully completely rubbish at the moment, so I'm going to be husky and sexy for these oh, uh, okay. live conversations. So, so that's what you call it. Yes, exactly. Yeah, that's, that's what I have to call it. You, know, you have to try and make the, the positive out of the negative. Hello, I'm Dave. I'm the guy that's putting all this stuff together. I need to get better. Please make me better. I want to get better. Better. Better acquainted with you. Today, we're getting better acquainted with... We're getting even better acquainted with Michael Fenton Stevens. Hello. Hello, Dave. How are you? <laughs> nice to nice see to, you. Nice yeah. to be back in front of your mic. That's right. <laughs> I mean, we've we've had a conversation. We've, we've been talking for the last half an hour. Yeah. And then, and then I do this kind of intro thing. It's always a strange, <laughs> strange experience. What were we talking about? Yeah, something exactly, important. Nothing. Exactly. Now we're going to be talking about something unimportant. Exactly. You know Me. exactly right. And this is the first live show here in the Invisible Picture Palace, which is a greenhouse essentially you guys call it a glass house though i don't know don't know why you've made that distinction and this is yeah not you not you i feel very at home in a greenhouse but yeah i say I'm, I'm an allotment keeper oh well there you go so i spend many of my happy hours hiding away in my greenhouse and having a slight fag 
So this is a, li- a, 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 a different version of that because it is. You, yeah, it's just bigger. I'm envious of. Yeah, you're it. hiding, I hiding. I just look and think, oh, there are things I could grow in here. <laughs> so oh. you're, you're hiding with a group today. <laughs> yeah. So we've got. It, it, this is a li- as live. I guess I should have built it as as live because it won't go out for a few months. But we're recording in front of an audience of four. I can pull them in. There you go. You can hear, you can hear there's people in the room. And yeah, so this is an interesting experience for me and a, and a, a kind of experiment to see what it's like having a an intimate conversation in a, in front of a group of people. Yeah, I know. Whether you can actually, uh, in a way, forget that they're there or, or feel that they ought to join in more. Yeah. You know, that sort of thing when you feel as if you're dominating the conversation. Yes. You know, I'm, I'm talking all the time and somebody else should have a go. Yeah, no, that's right. Because that's one of the one of the things that guests it's, it's kind just, of get a, out of this show is, is when that. It's, when yeah. it's two, two people sitting in a room, you, you feel fine about having a conversation and chatting about things and talking about yourself all the time. Yeah. But I think that having... A sort of, in a way, an audience here, but an audience that we've been chatting with. You suddenly feel as if you, the social pressure of I really ought to shut up now. I've yeah. been talking far too much. Or be all, I yeah, have or, to resist that. Or be more entertainment, like in, in a, in a. Oh yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. I, should, I should be trying to sing some songs or something. Yeah, exactly. Well, you, well you're a man who can who, who can do that. So the, <laughs> the first question that I ask everybody is, how do you know me? My daughter went to university with you at uh, Lancaster University. That's right. And we met up there when I came up on several occasions. Although my most memorable journey to Lancaster was when she rang up and she'd had a really bad headache. And at, the, at that time, there was a real spate of meningitis going around in, amongst university students. Far too much kissing, I think. <laughs> Certainly in my daughter's case. And, uh, <laughs> oh God, I'm in trouble now. And, uh, no, she was, I think she was in a, a long term relationship yeah, at that time. But, uh, she, <laughs> well, you know, uh, yeah. she, she, uh, and she got her headache got worse and worse and worse, and she had a fever, and we, we started to panic about it. And then uh, basically, I, I was talking to her on the phone, and she sounded really ill. And I said to her, Do you want to come home? And she said, Yes, please. And I was out of the door before the phone. You know, I handed the phone to my wife and I was out in my car. I then spent four hours sitting stationary on the M25. Oh, God. <laughs> yeah, it kind and, of takes the, takes the shine got, out of being yeah, a white Yeah, I got light. to Lancaster about, uh, I don't know, about half past 11 at night and thought she was asleep by then, so I... I booked into a little cheap hotel and then first thing in the morning put her she fell asleep at the back of the car and I drove her back home but uh, that one really sticks in my mind because the whole time I was thinking oh god what if she is really ill when you're saying that it's reminding me in the second year I lived in a house with your with your daughter yeah and uh, me and your daughter and our friend Clive uh, b- bought two rats uh, <laughs> to be pets for the house oh. and uh, I think the way it worked out is they bought a rat each, and I bought the house, and so it worked yeah. out as a third of these rats were, you know, were, were ours, and we had the rats, and I looked after those rats in the holidays, and so I grew quite attached to those rats. But then my, our housemate Richard, kind of rather, out of characterly, killed them. No, he didn't kill them. Oh, he, right. he threw, <laughs> he, he threw one of the rats uh, down the stairs. Oh, I remember Hanning telling me she was furious. Well, in, indeed, she was furious, she was and, furious. And, and she was rightly furious. <laughs> uh, I never. I mean, what happened was 
I mean, and, and, I, and in Richard's second conversation, I do address this with him. <laughs> but he, but the, the, the rat went to the toilet on him, yeah. so he was very annoyed with it, and he threw it down, threw it away from him, and he, he, he maintains he was aiming for his girl, girlfriend at the time's uh, breasts mm. to cushion the, uh, the rat, but, but nobody really bought that. No. And Hannah was, yeah, as you say, quite right, right, rightly annoyed, yeah. but then when we had the house meeting, the problem was that me and Clive laughed, Oh no! and then that was it. The, the rats were taken from our custody, in yeah, fact, yeah. taken to your house in Tunbridge Wells. Yes, so they were indeed. Mouse and mole. Yeah, we had them at our house. In fact, I think I had that rat down. Oh, wow. Yes. It's always been my task in, <laughs> as a father. It's, I've been the one who has to... When, when, in fact, you don't want to pay vet bills and things like that. Yeah. Now, I may get sued for this, but I, I think I gave it sleeping pills rather, okay. rather a lot. <laughs> wow. Well, and I put it to sleep. I a way to, to do sleep. it. Yeah. Yeah, it just went thing and it, and it died. But it was very ill. And okay. she was all upset about it, and I said, oh, I'd probably die soon. And I, I fed it sleeping pills, which it was very happy to eat. Yeah, it was, it didn't have, those rats didn't have the best of lives. I do, feel, really, I do yeah. feel a bit sorry about that, yeah. but I, I, did, I did like those rats, and I was, I was, I was quite grumpy yeah, about lose, losing custody. I had to put uh, chicken down. There was no, it was not nice. <laughs> oh, God. <laughs> God. I mean, what, why, why, why is it that you. you you're well, maybe nobody else will cope with it. Nobody okay. else will do it, you know. And they say, we'll take it to the vet. And I say, it's. I'm not taking it to the vet. <laughs> you know. It's not. It's not as personal, is it? I guess if you take it to the vet. I, I'm not going to put down a dog. Let's put it that way. I'm right. not that sort of man. I'm not going to throttle a dog. <laughs> if you get worried about it. And no, no, these are creatures that are virtually dead. That's it. And, and then when I, they are dead. Yeah. You just help them over that. I help last, them over the line. I am the little Swiss hospital <laughs> in the garden. Wow. Um, and you, the, the, the second question I ask people is, what do you do now? Well, no, I'm, I'm an act- I'll do the same. I've done for years, actually. I'm, I'm an actor. Right. And I've, um, I've been doing that since, since I finished college. Yeah. But in fact, before I finished college, I started doing it. I didn't tell my tutor. <laughs> but uh, no, I was doing I did a tour, and, uh, and we did a radio series before I left university. Wow, and you went to, is it, was it Oxford or Cambridge? Uh, I went to, uh, no, Oxford Polytechnic it was right. then, okay. which is now called Oxford Brooks. Right. Yeah, so, yeah. What, actually, what did you, what did you study? In? Law. Law, that's I was right. going to be a lawyer, course, yeah. That's right. I have a family of lawyers, well, almost. My father was a lawyer, and so and my younger brother is a lawyer. And, uh, and it was all lined up for me to do the same thing, and I'd done it before I went to university. I did a year as an article clerk, and then I went off to do a degree in law, and I was to come back and finish my articles and qualify as a solicitor and join the family firm, as it were. But I, I never went back. No, I mean, and so you're the, out of all of the live guests I'm having, you're the, the one who's probably the most used to being on stage and being looked at by people. Yeah. But I, but I guess you're but not, not very, necessarily as myself. Yeah, that's what I, I mean, was I don't say, do panel yeah. games or anything like that. No, that's no, right. They're, they're quite difficult. I always quite admire those, those people who do panel games and, and quiz shows and what have you, because they are... I suppose they're, they're, if they're stand-up comedians, they, they're, they're projecting the persona that they use as a stand-up. But people like David Mitchell, for example, that's no, who he is, right. you know, and he just happens to be very witty. Yeah, I and mean, he's able to do it. But there are there are many people who are very witty and very funny in conversation, who put in the situation of in front of a camera and do it now, just aren't they? Die. Yeah, no, I, although I find it's, it's just, it is a funny thing that I wish that I was more. I find that I'm often more eloquent and, uh, you know, 
perform better on stage than I do in a conversation yeah. in, a, in a party, you know? Yeah. <laughs> like, give true. me a stage, I can be relatively but charming, always, put me in a party, I'll offend everyone. <laughs> <laughs> people are always asking me to do that, that thing of, can you ask everybody to gather round and things like that, as if I'm a sort of a town crier. <laughs> so, because I've got a loud voice, really, I suppose, but at yeah. the same time, as if, as if you won't mind doing that, or you'll like doing that almost, you know, as if, as if it would be a pleasure for me to, at any moment, to start, you know, uh, to stand up and cite a poem, you know, come on, come on, you love doing that sort of thing. And I like doing it when I'm being paid. But, but uh, do you love it a little bit? I do like it. I like performing. <laughs> yeah. I like performing. I enjoy it enormously. You know, and, uh, and, and it satisfies many of those desires for, for sort of uh, adulation and, and, uh, and people giving you attention, which yeah. you might not have in other walks of life, or you sure. might, might not have in real life, you know. But actually, <laughs> it's, it's, it's strange. I don't very often... There are a lot of actors who, who are very concerned about audiences, and they're very very concerned about whether the audience like them or if they're a good audience, and they're always lumping the audience together. My wife always says that that's, you, you can't do that. If, if an audience is a bad audience, it's your fault. Yeah, I know. And I think she's absolutely right. There are many actors who say, well, shit audience tonight, they're rubbish, I, you know, they're, nothing's working. And you think, well, it's probably you. Yeah. It almost certainly is, because if the play worked the night before... It can't be that a whole group of 900 people all decided tonight to be in a bad mood. Well, it's a funny thing, though. It doesn't even have to be just the... It doesn't have to be... It, it, it is down to you, I think, but it doesn't always have to be kind of a fault anywhere. Like um, Stuart Lee said in a, a conversation on a podcast I listened to called WTF with Mark Maron. Great, Stuart Lee. Uh, yeah, he, he said uh, that he realised after a while, like he took some time out from stand-up. Yeah. When he came back, he started doing his stand-up again and he, he, he found that suddenly he felt sorry for the audiences yeah. because they they come out to see a comedian and they got him and, yeah, yeah, yeah. and he kind of knew that suddenly he felt sort of started feeling empathy oh. with these people of like actually they went out on a Friday night they wanted Thinking, let's have a good yeah. time and 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 and, and then they're not he's not wrong they're not wrong but they're wrong as a combination but you, you know? should see Stuart Lee perform in Tunbridge Wells it's a joy <laughs> oh, I've, 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 seen, I've seen him several times in Tunbridge Wells he just he goes for the throat <laughs> more than he would anywhere else you know because if he's playing to an audience of, of like-minded people then he, it's easy in fact yeah. you know I'm sure he must be tempted sometimes to pretend he's not who he is yeah sure you know, I remember years ago seeing um, who's Lily Allen's dad Keith, Keith Allen. Allen Keith Allen yeah Keith Allen at the comedy store well, no, the comic strip it was it was called then it was at Soho strip place and the comic strip used to were a sort of rival of the comedy store and Alexis Sale was performing there and Rick and Aid and all sorts of people that, and French and Saunders very good show and uh, I was in it so apart from me it was very good <laughs> Keith Allen came on and he had he developed this this following of of, uh, of of sort of, well, yuppies, really. <laughs> they were, the, the sort of first yuppies. And they decided that he was just such a funny chap, you know, and so sort of left-wing and right-on. And, and they'd come along and they'd go forward everything he said. And I, I think he just got fed up with it. He came out and he, he shaved his head <laughs> with a swastika. Oh, wow. And he came out with a crombie Jesus. coat on and big, great big uh, Dr. Martin boots and with a tiny little record player, portable record player, which he put down on, on the thing and he just put it on and it just played this sort of jazz music and he just stood and listened and people were laughing a bit yeah. and then somebody went do something and he went berserk 
you fucking people, you fucking come here, you fucking... <laughs> it, it was, um, whoa, it was right in their face. Yeah. How dare you tell me to get on with it, you spoiled bloody load of... You don't know what life is. He, he just <laughs> tore into this audience. Now, well, most of them sat there completely shocked. Uh, my wife, who's got a very bizarre sense of humour, <laughs> one of the reasons I've always liked her, is she stood at the back of this theatre and was crying with laughter <laughs> because she could see the irony of it. And then he, then he went, I'm not even going to let you listen to the record. And he smashed his record player up. And then he walked off stage. <laughs> That's brilliant. It was, it was like performance art. Yeah, 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 sure. And then, and then the next day he wakes up and he's got a swastika yeah, shaved into his head and he has to work he out how to maneuver through life. Yeah, yeah, yeah. He went a number one and then went back, you know. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and then sure. went back to doing his thing, but he just obviously needed this release. Yeah, no, And, no, I, and I, I, I can see that with Stuart Lee sometimes. You, I, you feel that he must want to do it, you know, occasionally just sort of pretend he's not who he is in order to stir things up. Yeah, no, I've... Because you I've, never I've, know where you are with him, do you? No, well, that's what, that's what I like about him, absolutely. I should explain to people if they are wondering why there's occasional kind of uh, sounds of uh, loud cl- clicks. It's, it's me uh, cracking nuts. It's, it's, yeah, that's right, it's my ca- cracking nuts. It's a, it's a, what kind of a... Wood stove? A wood stove. It's a wood stove that yeah. we were worried... It's a proper greenhouse wood stove. It has lit, and, uh, and that's nice, nice for us, it's nice and warm, but people who... People who moan about sound may moan about that. Yeah, um, um, they're, they're, they can all pretend that they're people listening to records, and in fact, it's, they've gone back a few years. Yeah, and they're listening to LPs, and they've all got the fa- their favourite scratch on it. Yeah. So if they listen to this again, they'll say, "There's a bit coming up here. I always like yeah. it because there's a really good click there." That's right. Yeah, and, um, yeah. That's what you used to do when you listened to records. You, well, had your, you knew your own record because of its own clicks. Yeah, no, that's true. And, and in fact, I think tape almost has that sort of effect as well yeah I mean and I brought this in with me actually because I bought this I, I tweeted you about it when I bought it actually oh and I bought this when I was on the south bank and I was walk, you know their bookshop there mm. and I saw this it's a it's <laughs> a BBC radio collection radioactive yeah. with Angus Deaton Helena, Helen Atkinson Wood Jeffrey Perkins Philip Pope and Michael Fenton Stevens there we are although look they've got they've, you've got, they've got the uh, they've got the iPhone, iPhone there that's because I'd only just added the Fenton at that I point. See. Uh, so before I th- that, I was Michael Stevens, and I then thought, Equity said I couldn't be. And I thought, what better place to, for this to be, rather than in my house where I haven't got a tape player? Uh, <laughs> than, than in the, the fire. Well, than, in oh, no. <laughs> than in the Invisible Picture Palace. So here you go, Connor. This Hurrah! is a donation for me. A donation of weird Brilliant. conversations. Um, for your collection, because the Invisible Picture Palace is a place where people can come and listen to radio and also buy it. Yeah, that's to add to your collection. Very good. And, and radio, good. Radioactive... It's is. a classic as well. It's a classic. <laughs> I was tweeted just the other day with somebody saying how uh, they were listening to an episode on, is it 4 Extra? Yeah, it's on 4 Extra. They seem to repeat Radioactive all the time, which is great, not that we get any money for it. But, <laughs> yeah. but uh, they were saying that there was a whole sequence in an election special and it all seemed to be uh, incredibly relevant. <laughs> but I think that's not because we were so wise, but because things don't really change. No, that's, that is true, actually, about political satire. Yeah. I do think, in a way... Just often names. political satire dates the least like comedy dates quite quickly mm. but political satire often there is still some relevance to whatever yeah, time yeah. because politicians are still it's why it's why um, yeah, <laughs> beyond the fringe and everything is still a funny show yeah so is it fair to say that you sort of started out in radio in terms of getting out into, into like people's awareness in, in such yeah a I did I, I went straight into radio which is a, a, a weird thing to do 
I was thinking about that just today, actually, the number of people who started in radio. And because and, uh, I heard somebody complaining once again about the BBC licence fee, and it drives me mad. <laughs> I, can't, yeah. I mean, there's so much in our culture that is only there because the BBC gave it an opportunity. And there are just, and in, just in the world of comedy, yeah. I was trying to think of the people, the comics who are around now who didn't start in radio. And that was, I thought that was a more sensible way to think about it. Yeah. Because there are so many, almost everybody would have done a radio program demonstrating their ability to yeah. perform comedy before they did, they were given the licence to do television. Yeah, they wouldn't take that risk. The most recent generations as well. I mean, like, the League of Gentlemen started on Absolutely. radio. Lee and Herring, Stuart, you know, Stuart uh, Lee started on radio. Little Britain. Yeah. You know, all, that, all those things Absolutely. are all good. I was thinking that the, the, the ones... Uh, Ricky Gervais, I think, didn't. Well, he did have a radio show, though, didn't he? He had his own radio show. Yeah, he so, was, I mean, but he so was I suppose a that would personality have been, rather yeah, than so comedy, there, but, but that was, was LBC, wasn't it? That's right, yeah. it wasn't on the BBC. So, that's so true. it wasn't the BBC. Sasha Baron Cohen, I think, was one name I came up with that I don't think did a radio series. Yeah. It was just so... Well, he's a, he's a, he's, he, he auditioned for the Footlights, but didn't get in didn't as well, get in, famously. Yeah. Yeah. They didn't get him. Exactly. I wonder who's laughing now. You were trained as an actor... Before you started, uh, no, I didn't. I never trained as an okay. actor. No, I never did any training. All the all the training I've had has been on the job, as it were, uh, and through watching other people perform. My father was a bit of a was a performer. Yeah, uh, although right. he was a solicitor, he had, ran his own. He had a sort of a, an entertainment group. That's right. Yeah, and so he used to go out. We used to go out every weekend, and I used to be dragged along at weekends to to perform with him from when I was very young. But I think, I mean, I've got two brothers, but I was the one that was taken and I think that's because my younger brother maybe was too young and my older brother wasn't interested but I was always interested in, in, in singing and performing and, and I really liked watching him do it. So you're the middle child? Mm. That's interesting. I mean, well I, it's only interesting to me because I'm the middle child in terms of my my, my brother and my little sister yeah. and I've kind of gone in the direction that my dad kind of went in, in right. his kind of career I've got into like making stuff he's actually in the room I'm looking yeah. at him he's, he's looking awkward um, <laughs> and yeah, I, no, I did I, I think that, I think you've got see, my younger brother went into, you know, into when you're in my younger brother followed him in, into the law and is now works for the Crown ah, Prosecution right. Service so I mean he obviously had the same admiration for him that I did but, but followed that line yeah. whereas I followed the the sort of slightly quirky thing that he did at weekends, you know, the performing side. And he always encouraged me to do it. And I think even when, even having sort of you know, spent money on me going to university and, uh, and having the place set up for me to work with him and to train and be a solicitor, and then choosing to take on a rather precarious career. Yeah. And at the same time, basically saying, I'm getting married, and then very shortly afterwards saying, I've got children. You know, mm. with no prospects of work, or, you know, I had a radio series, that was it. You yeah, know. You, you had and a very I, risky, like, very risky. So, a lot I mean, of risks. But he always, out, yeah. he never said, uh, he never said, don't be stupid or don't do it. He always said, oh, okay, fine, that's what you want to do. Well, and I think he rather sort of uh, would have liked to have done it himself, well, yeah. but, but didn't, never had the opportunity. And so when you started in radio, I guess the experience of acting that you'd had had been doing student reviews. Yeah, yeah, I, although I got into that very late as well. I, I, I Really, most of the acting that I did, although I did comedy plays, most of the acting I did at university was, was serious acting. Okay. I did straight plays. Yeah. You know, I did Shakespeare and, right. and other things like that, what is serious. And, uh, and I, I intended to be a serious actor. That's right, I, intended yeah. to be, you know, I intended to go out and 
join the Royal Shakespeare Company or the Glasgow Sit. So that's well, that was my that's what I thought life was going to be, and I was all set up to do that. Yeah. And then uh, I auditioned for I, I auditioned to go up to the Edinburgh Festival at the end of my second year, and uh, and were, did three very serious plays, one about Sylvia Plath, all very meaningful and lots of people wailing and stuff, yeah. and citing poetry, and another one. Uh, a play called the Lawrence Accio story, which had been on the Royal Shakespeare Company and was very deep and meaningful. And uh, I can't remember what the third one was, but then then they said, "Would you like to do the review?" And I said, "I really didn't know what a review was. I wasn't uh, from a from a society or a, a, a class of people that sort of knew how universities worked, and I didn't know anything about the footlights or yeah. any of those things at all." And uh, and I said, "What is a review?" And they said, "It's like." songs and sketches and I thought oh well I know that world yeah I understand that completely because I've been doing it with my dad since I was 10 yeah I understood I understood you know singing this song and then pretending to be this person and kind of music hall in a way yeah, isn't that's it? what I thought even about. though it's kind of I co-opted it by the university kind of that's certainly how I music per- certainly how I performed it when I first started <laughs> <laughs> very much as musical but um so and, and I think I sort of rather surprised people yeah, so you went from that into radio acting. I mean, did it was you Angus, like, Angus. Yeah, that's right. I mean, we, I mean, oh, we talked about this. Well, we did on the, in, our, in, okay. in episode one. We did, uh, the first conversation. Let's I did, not we go did. over old ground. No, absolutely, and it, you know, Angus, it, and you, yeah, Angus Deaton, who is in, is in that tape as well. He was yeah. the guy that auditioned you. Yeah. Um, I mean, I guess what I'm what because we've done a lot of the acting stuff before and because we're in this venue that's about listening and, and radio. Mm. I guess what I was interested to ask you is. Like, what's the difference between acting on stage and acting on screen and acting in they, radio? They are very different, I think. Yeah, I, I, I think on the on the stage, the the most important thing is 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 the immediacy of it, and and the live nature of the whole thing. That you're absolutely there at that moment, and you have no other option but yeah. to carry on. You know, you have to do it then and there, and the choices you make then and there are the ones for that night and that audience will see that and that's it uh, and no matter how much you rehearse something or practice something there, there are always variations and people who say people often ask actors how can you do the same play over and over and over again because some people do them for years I've, the longest I've ever done is about eight months I think doing the same play and I still on the very, I can't remember coming off stage on the last performance and going oh shit because I've thought of something that I hadn't done, yeah. and a way to do it that was, oh, no, that would have been a better way to do it. And it, so I still had the frustration of not, of not sort of fulfilling my ambition to do it right, I felt. So is, so there, is there a right way of doing I it? I don't think there is, I mean, but I, but I think that you, you try to take all those tiny little moments and weave them into a performance, making each one uh, the way you thought it would be best. But that, that can change as well. That's, so you, that's you, what can, I was thinking. you can be absolutely certain that the only way to do a line is is, is this, you know, uh, and then and then you um, there's a Dusty Springfield song, um, uh, yeah, um, Billy Ray was a preacher, that one, yeah. and and for years you, and everybody knows it as uh, uh, only boy who could ever reach me was the son of a preacher man. Everybody knows that. Yeah. That's how you sing it. Yeah. And she, I saw her interviewed late in life, said, I was singing it one night and I realised that that was really wrong. That in fact is the only man who could ever reach me was the son of a preacher man. 
Wow. <laughs> and it was just, she yeah. just wanted to change the tune and the timing and the, put an extra beat in. That was what was that was a better way to do it. No, and, and you thought, and every time she did it, you thought, no, that's wrong. Yeah. But uh, that's the. I think that's the thing of live performing. Well, that's that the interesting thing because when you were saying about um, when you were saying about changing an acting performance, I mean, I've done a bit of acting, but not very much. But I've done a lot of uh, songwriting and singing, yeah. and 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 I've I've lived with songs for you know ten years, doing them in different ways, and it's they evolve without you even knowing and then you find a new thing you suddenly find a, a line means something different from yeah, what you yeah. thought it meant and or an audience kind of can tell you that as well I yeah. mean you suddenly become you get you get a laugh that you had no idea was there at all and you really think oh god you know of course if I do that with that if I move at that point and say that or that then it becomes a completely different yeah. thing and then you, 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 so an audience is very will educate you in, in how to do the play. Yeah, no, it's it's so fascinating the way that works as well. Like I saw Leonard Cohen a few years ago, and I'm re- really familiar with Leonard Cohen's yeah, work. Yeah. But one of the things I found fascinating about his 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 gig at the O2, apart from the fact that it was amazing that it was an intimate gig in the oh, O2, and it still worked. <laughs> you know, um, it was like like this greenhouse being watched by thousands and thousands of people. <laughs> well, you never know. Um, <laughs> yes, <laughs> but but. Uh, but what I found really interesting is he changed words, you know. Yeah, he just yeah. changed. He just changed words. He just felt like, you know, yeah, yeah. what you kind of look at is kind of sacred texts. He years. doesn't care. He just these, yeah. these are my texts. So I'll change my the words in like, Tonight I feel like doing this. Yeah, and that was really interesting. I mean, that can be a dangerous attitude because there are <laughs> constrictions within you which are working. <laughs> yes, and, and I have found myself on occasions tempted to go outside of those, and people do get annoyed with you. Particularly writers. Yeah. Well, I, I'm, I'm, I know. You start, you start I know this from both sides bit, as know. well. As a writer, I'm, yeah. I'm, 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 I'm. Actually, I tend to welcome changes that, that actors make to what I've done. I yeah, I heard an interview on the radio like before the other night on the, uh, the one of the six, seven, subjects off the arch as well. So program, I can't remember. Front row. Yes. And, and he, uh, Mark, Lawson, yeah, Mark Lawson was uh, was saying to this writer. And then, then that when he said they changed, he said that line. That's a very powerful line, isn't he? He said, "Yeah, yeah, no, he only put that in tonight." And, then, <laughs> and Mark Lawson said, "What?" He said, "No, he improvised that." It's a good line, though, isn't it? <laughs> and he said, "Well, will he carry on doing?" It? He said, "No, I'm going to attempt to keep it in." Very good. <laughs> and he wasn't the writer wasn't at all affronted by the fact no, that this actor felt like, you know, saying that line at that moment. But there are other writers and directors often who say, "You know, what are you doing?" Hmm. And you say, well, I didn't, the audience sort of wanted it. I could <laughs> sense they wanted it. You know, I felt they they made me do it. <laughs> the audience. And sometimes made me do you, it, feel, you do feel like yeah. that. You do feel as if an audience is is just, you know, saying, "Go on, go yeah. on, dare, <laughs> be brave." And I like, yeah. and and that's it's also uh, the thing that terrifies most people about uh, performing on stage or going out in front of an audience is the audience. And the fact that they they feel that if they go wrong, they're going to look stupid. Yeah. And they're going to make a fool of themselves. Yeah. Whereas in fact, I, it's the thing that I like. I like the prospect of making a complete fool of myself, <laughs> and and then getting to the end of the evening and having not made a fool of myself, I go, ha, I got away with it again. <laughs> it's incredible. It's, I mean, I always walk out on stage thinking. This could go disastrously wrong. Yeah. What fun! <laughs> <laughs> and and then you that's have no fear, then you have no fear at all. You yeah. don't, you're not frightened. You're just excited. Yeah, that's great. So what's specific? Like what's what's different about the way you act on radio though? When it's just audio. Well, radio, from... of course, a bit like this, I suppose. People you know, will, will be making their own pictures up, 
around us. You know, we're obviously yeah. at Heathrow. And, and uh, exactly, that's what they'll think. We don't have yeah. those two devis- dev- devilishly att- attractive people are at Heathrow. Who are watching us talk. That's <laughs> what <they're doing. laughs> Yeah. Well, no, it's, it's always it's always funny actually when you when you meet somebody who you've only heard, you know, and Absolutely. they don't look the way that you expect. I've had that experience a few times doing this because I've interviewed podcasters that I listen yeah, to, yeah, and then yeah. I'm, I've sort of taken seen back. pictures of them, but three dimensions well, I, are very on different. that very. I mean, in that very thing, I'm doing something at the moment which is completely iconic as far as radio is concerned, and and uh, and that is full of people who um, who they're a whole nation has a picture of them, they know who they are, and they're very personal to them. And they, they fortunately, most of the people who do it are not very well known. And that's because I'm in the Archers at the moment. Yeah, that's right, you just started in the just Archers. Had, yeah, you? well, I've gone back into the Archers. Ah, I was right. in the Archers two years ago and played a part for about four months, and now they've brought him back. And, and the character I play in the Archers is... Uh, somebody said early on, that I'd done a lot of radio, lots of, a lot of Radio 4, and that, that I, I would be uh, recognisable as a voice. And I deliberately said to them, well, you know, who is this character, what is he like? And they said, well, he's a builder. And I said, well, so uh, just a builder, builder? Or did... And I found out who he was, and I said, should I play him with a bit of a Cockney accent? And they said, uh, yeah, if you can. So I did. I took him down market, as it were. But I also made him deeper. I, I, I got quite gruff. Um, and actually, he doesn't talk. Very, he talks more like that, and he's uh, he, he talks very quietly. And very, it sounds a bit like a gangster. Yeah, Ray Winston. <laughs> yeah, Ray Winston. And the, the effect of this, having done this, is that that, that there apparently are hordes of um, of home counties. Uh, middle-aged women who are drooling over this man because he's a very charming man he's very sweet he's terribly thoughtful he always asks women he always notices if women have their hair cut he's always saying what a lovely dress you've got on you know how are you feeling how's that affecting you he's, he's one of those he's terribly sweet and nice but at the same time he's a builder wow yeah he's nice yeah. because and he, yeah, he, yeah. He, he renovates old buildings so he does beautiful work oh god you know so he's the he's Mr. Perfect. They've yeah. written Mr. Perfect, and then and then uh, when's this going out in a few months' time? That's all right. Then, okay. Yeah, yeah. And then it turns out that I end up um, uh, going to bed with this woman who I've been pursuing for a long time, and uh, and and it turns out that apparently he's fantastic in bed as well. <laughs> <laughs> then they said, "Could we take a photograph of you and put it on the on the?" Archer's website, and I said, "Why would you want to do that? <laughs> why would you want to spoil? Yeah, or, or well, yeah. you can do it, but why would anybody look at that? Yeah, why would you go to the Archer's website and look at photographs of the actors who I are playing know. the part it's when you know, yeah. when undoubtedly in a, in a radio soap opera you have a very clear image in your head of who these people are yeah. and what they look like. If you ask anybody, they all think differently." But they have a very clear picture of who they are. I mean, I guess radio is a really liberating medium for an actor because you can play any. You part. can if your yeah. voice is a, if your voice is able to to, to go there. Yeah. To go there, you can do it. You know, if you can, uh, you know, there have, there have been times I'm, when I was younger and I had uh, less of a worn out voice or a deep voice. I'd, I've played women and got away with it. Yeah, it's extraordinary. Yeah, it's, that uh, is pretty extraordinary now. Yeah. yeah. Uh, just in different things, and, and you can play all sorts of people. You can play, I, I mean, I, I, that's where I first started playing posh people 
interestingly enough. Up until then, I'd never really, because I was with a lot of very posh people. Yeah. I was with, I fell in with the, with the Oxford and Cambridge crowd. Exactly, yeah. And they were all genuinely posh. They were all real posh people. And they knew that I wasn't, because they can spot a non-posh, <laughs> yeah. you know, at a thousand paces. They're very good at it, you know. Yes. Uh, so, yeah, which school did you go to, Mike? Yeah. And I go, uh, Ramsden. <laughs> Ramsden, where's that? So it's a, it's, you wouldn't know it. It's not a private school. Really? How interesting. <laughs> no, just incredibly posh people. Yeah. Very nice, but it just happened to be posh. So I never got cast as the posh one. I got cast as the, the rough bloke or the, the bloke with a Yorkshire accent. I yeah, do lots you, of accents. You, you so I, went, I jumped around. Working class, token working class. Yeah, yeah. Actor, yeah. I was the one who did all those parts that they couldn't do. You know. and, uh, and then once I stopped doing those sketch shows, I suddenly found that because we'd had a lot of posh people in, our, in Radioactive, they sort of assumed that I must have done some of them. And I was being offered parts, and I suddenly thought, well, actually, I can do it. And I ended up, and now I play that more often, yeah, more yeah. often than I play anything else. But naturally, I mean, I, I, I sort of um, taught myself to speak properly. That's right, because you grew up in Birmingham. Yeah, I did, South yeah. London. All my uncles are dockers. Uh, my mother, my mother talks like that. She does genuinely yeah. talks like that, and she just has a, a voice like that. She don't don't know how to say anything proper. She's she's a right cockney. She's proper. Yeah. Oh no, leave it out. That's my mother's voice. So that's the voice I grew up with. My father, who when he was with his brothers, would be yeah, come on in here, right? You want some like that? And then he would go, oh hello, Johnny, how are you? Yes, I mean of course I know we have to next Thursday. And he was, he basically, I think my father taught himself to, uh, to uh, teach, taught himself to speak properly by, by watching um, uh, Robert Donat in the, in the 39 Steps. <laughs> you can see it. He, he used to mimic Robert, Robert Donat and all his, all his friends in Bermondsey used to say, here, go on, Harry, do that, do that Robert Donat thing. Do the funny, here, here, listen to him, he's bloody brilliant at this. And he'd go, one of the 39 Steps. You're a very attractive woman. <laughs> Things like that. And they go, that's unbelievable, it sounds just like him. So that's the world I grew up in. Yeah, I mean, so, so... So as soon as I got to, <laughs> I got to Oxford, obviously. Yeah. Now, when I was at school, a lot of my friends, they, weren't, they were suburban in a way that they'd go, you know, Orpington, I went to school. Yeah. So there, it's a, it's a sort of, uh, they've got an estuary English, right, isn't it? Right, yeah. So again, I didn't speak properly then. And then I turned up in Oxford and thought, I'm never going to fit in here unless I start to mimic them. Yeah. So I did. Yeah. Yeah. Well, that's a, it's a useful thing to. Have stuck. Yeah. It's, it's, a, well, it's a useful thing to to have mimicked, though. I mean, it's it's. Yeah, it is. <laughs> it, it is. Yeah. Yeah. Open up a lot of doors, really. Well, uh, and closed others. I would, direct, <laughs> you know, I mean, uh, uh, yeah, years true. ago, uh, Andy Hamilton, who I've worked with a lot over the years, was making a program where all the characters were gangsters. And, and it was set in South London. And I know those people. Yeah. I mean, all my cousins are those people. <laughs> I know exactly what those people are like, and I can play them really convincingly. And in fact, it would be easier for me to play that than for me to play something in Downton Abbey. I'd have to work hard at that. But, but I can play, you know, those other things I can do. But he's, I said to him, uh, there's no, no part for me, Andy. You always give me a part. He said, oh, yeah, no, Mike, it's, uh, it's cause, uh, no, there's no posh blokes in it. <laughs> I said, but Andy, I come from Bermondsey, that's where I come from. He said, you don't. <laughs> <laughs> that was it. Well, that's it, because you, you, you... I missed out on that job. Yeah, I mean, <laughs> it's, it's a funny thing, because 
you get cast as vicars. Yeah. Um, and, but, <laughs> no, not gangsters. Now, a builder. Finally, I've gone back to a bit of a Cockney accent. Yeah, but you, yeah. And I mean, I guess, yeah, before I move on to the uh, one of the, some of the other subjects I wanted to talk about, I mean, is that, like, is the process of doing radio acting like acting on radio how, how is that it's much quicker from? than you know television is very television and film are, are terribly slow uh, you have a lot of sitting around yeah, the time in which really you practice your lines that's what you do I mean if you know if you've done the work beforehand you, then anybody who does any television or film you never turn up on a set not knowing your lines I mean uh, unfortunately people who do soap operas and things are sort of forced into that situation yeah. it's really difficult they have such a fast turnaround that they're almost forced to learn the lines as they're going and it's really difficult but if you have any time or time to prepare it's it's the only thing you can do that you have any power over is to know that you know the lines and that you can say them at the drop of a hat from any point in the scene and you can stop and you can pick it up from anywhere and you also practice how you're going to say it because mm. you get very little rehearsal uh, and then you will go through it once or twice. You will find the other actor, generally, or the other actors in the scenes you're with. You will go through the lines with them in makeup that you're going to do that day, and then you'll discover that they're doing something that you really didn't expect. And so you then go, "Oh, that's interesting. Oh, well, I'll have no. I can't do that then. I'll have to change it to that." So you sort of redirect yourself before you even get to on set. And then on set, the director will say, "Okay," um, with nobody else there, he'll say, "Okay, let's go through the scene," and you show him the scene. But very often he'll say, you say, is it right if I walk over here? And he said, yeah, find it, whatever you like. You do what you like, and then I'll tell you if, you if you can't do it. And then you walk around, and then he says, actually, it'd be better if you sat down on that line because the camera here, and they'll work out their shots. And then they bring the camera crew in, and they show it to them, and then they set the sit thing up. You go away for an hour. Whereas in the radio, there's one focus, Whereas and that is just the voice. It's the voice. And you have the script in front of you, and you're reading it, and if you again, if you're sensible, you've done your preparation. You, you, you you're not really reading. So it. you don't stumble over it. You've read it a lot. You don't have to know it. Yeah. You've read it a lot, and you've worked things out, and you've probably marked it up and everything. And you know what you're going to do. You've got a good idea of what you you practiced it, and then then you do it in front of you know either in front of an audience or or even more easily just in front of a microphone, just in a room with another person both standing there doing it. The really interesting thing about radio, I think, is 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 that the power of, of, of a pause and the power of silence. And that's generally where all the, the real drama of, of radio acting occurs. Yeah. It's not necessarily in the words, but in, in the moments where you don't say something. No, you're I, thinking. I think that's the same in, in documentary and, 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 and the, the mm. non-fiction side of it. I mean, one of the things I'm finding about editing the show is I'm leaving in more and more silence. And I said that to um, somebody who does not radio with me, work. Though. Not with me. <laughs> well, <clears throat> well, I'll leave in silence if there's a big pa dramatic pause. <laughs> okay, let's just sit for a bit. Well, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> no, go on. Go on, see if we can do. I quite like the idea. Okay. Mm. <laughs> you can't do it. <laughs> It's, 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 more, it's more difficult to do it when there's sort of four people over on the, on the side of you. I mean, no, that's it. I, I love doing uh, all of them. I like doing radio a lot. I mean, I, but I think actually because I have done a lot of it, and I'm and therefore I'm very at ease with yeah. it. And I and I and I've done enough to know that I'm good at it. You yeah. know, that's the thing. And and often when I when I 
do listen back, and I don't always listen to or watch things that I do. I'm not no, obsessive. No, you, you said this last you time. Know, yeah, yeah, I, you know, I, I, come, I come across them. There are a whole series of radio things I've done that I've never heard. Because, and people say, oh, oh, didn't you listen to it? I say, no, I was there when it happened. <laughs> it sort of, so I, I sort of heard it the first time. Yeah, most, most of the guests are like that with this show. <laughs> <laughs> One thing that we didn't really touch on in the first conversation that we had, that we touched on kind of immediately after, and that happens so often in this show that I have mm. these fantastic conversations with people before the mic's on and after the mic's on. And the one that's where the mic's on is also good. I'm not, I'm no. not saying it isn't, but there, there are all these interesting conversations that I have around it. And one of the things that we sort of touched on was Catholicism, I guess. Yeah. So were you, did you grow up a Catholic? Uh, very Catholic. My father actually was Protestant and never became a Catholic, although he was a stalwart of the Catholic Church. Uh, and uh, I don't think people knew that he was a Protestant. It was one of those things. But my mother is an absolute devout Catholic, but a very straightforward Catholic. She has a very straightforward view. Imagine you go to, to Bible lessons as a small child and you're told this, 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 and this. And that is where she stayed. She's absolutely stuck with it. And, she, and if you get into a conversation where you question things, which I did the other day, actually, I said to her, because you were saying about, I said, my brother is a born-again Christian. Difficult, because he believes that the world is four and a half thousand years old and there's no such thing as evolution. <laughs> and the dinosaurs are, a, are God's joke. It's a, <clears throat> wind it's us up. It's a tricky thing to It's a tricky thing, you know, you can't argue against it because they're not interested in information or facts. They're not, inf- <laughs> they're not they're, it's faith is another thing. It's outside of that. And if you want to believe that, then you can believe anything, you know. And I sort of see where that is, you know. But I said to her, it's very difficult because he, you know, you absolutely, the word of the Bible is what actually happened. It's not an allegory. It's not a, a thing that men wrote down to try and teach us how to think and stuff or, or even just some people's thoughts. Yeah. It's the word of God and it's, it's sacrosanct and there it is. Well, that's uh, admirable in a way, I suppose, but also banal and rather simplistic, I think. Particularly, I said, you know, there are just it just doesn't work on so many different ways for me. I just can't see it. You know, if God made Adam and then he took a rib from Adam and yeah. from that he made Eve and they were in the Garden of Eden, the image of God, if they were made in his image, just because it doesn't say it in the Bible, because there are so many assumptions that are made, I think, from the teachings of the Bible that are not, they're not, said, they're not said, if that is the case, then were they not, in the image of God, eternal? Okay. So, so if they were eternal, is that was that not God's intention? Was it God's intention to put images of him on earth, two of them? I mean, they weren't supposed to have sex, were they? Not very much no. not. You no. know, that's. I mean, I always think that's what the apple is. But well, I guess when you know, they when they fell from the from the garden, the though, then they became when they she became was, mortal as I mean, well. I I fam- also, I was famously famously told that they wore fig leaves. <laughs> the moment that she ate the thing, they became aware yeah, of their that's sexuality. Right. They covered themselves so they up. covered themselves yeah. up. They covered their shame. So so that's a very Catholic thing as well, isn't it? Covering the shame. So anyway, so I was saying, so were they not eternal? So does that not mean, for example, they could have been placed on the earth? 13 billion years ago or how old's the earth you know 8 billion or six. Five, five, 5 billion so what right 5 billion years ago <laughs> and in that time outside of the garden of Eden on earth could not everything have been evolving and then maybe 
if you want to go, maybe four and a half thousand years ago, she finally ate an apple. But I said, but then the problem is, they then leave the Garden of Eden, knowing their shame, becoming aware of their sexuality, and have two sons. Yeah. Where do we come from? Yeah, no, it's a good, it's a good point. <clears throat> Where are the other humans? I think they had a few. I think they had. A, I actually think they had lots more children than just Cain and Abel. But, but, they but Cain then, and so Abel what, were we're all one. we're all interbred from yeah, these things. Sure. But no, no, they didn't. They went and uh, Cain and Abel found wives from the daughters of other tribes. Ah, yes, you're right. Actually, so there were other human beings. Yeah. So God didn't make Adam and Eve on His own thing. He made lots of human beings. And or is the Garden of Eden only for Adam and Eve when he made lots of human beings yeah. in It just doesn't add up. You, you, it doesn't make any sense. Yeah, I, I can't disagree with you. But my mother went, well, no, you see, what happened? And she just then told me the Bible story again. She just won't, quite, she's not into questioning it. She never will. She, for example, has cleaned the church toilets for most of her life. It's a thing that she does. She used to polish the whole of the church, the fl- every bit of it, every week for nothing and the presbytery because but specifically the toilets and when I asked her why she did it I said why do you do that every week mum she said well nobody else will do it she said and, and when I die he'll always want someone who's, you know I'm good at cleaning the toilets <laughs> and then he'll always want someone who can do that won't he and I think and I remember at the time being a teenager and, and asking a question of my mother, which now when I look back on it, was rather cruel. And, and I know now I wouldn't ask it because she has such faith in this fact mm-hmm. that she is going to go to heaven and that she's definitely got a place because God's seen all the good work she's done with the toilets and will know, get olive in. She lovely finish. Yeah. You know, she does a lovely finish on the bowl. It's really shiny. Everything's clean. <laughs> uh, but I said to her, do you think there are toilets in heaven? And she went, what? I said, do you think there are toilets in heaven? Yeah, that's a good question. Do we all go to the toilet? I mean, does that make it heaven? If people are sitting around getting constipated or having diarrhoea or crapping even, yeah. is that exactly heaven? Are we eating? Are we yeah, sure? Yeah, are we sure exactly. there's a toilet, Mum? And she went, don't be stupid, and walked away. But I think it did shake her to the core. And I remember as a teenager being sort of rather sort of gleeful about it and being sort of proud of myself. But now when I look back at it, I'm, I'm not proud of myself at all. Yeah, because I, I mean, I guess that's the obvious question. Is, is she happy in her fiction? I think so. Yeah. I think so. I mean, I think that she does, underneath it, sort of go, there are all those questions that you can't help asking about why would you let that happen? You know, and, since my, and certainly with the death of my father... I think that, like for most people, that really shook her faith, but not really, not the fundamental side of it. She still goes to church every day, just about every day. And as a boy, I did. When did you stop believing? Oh, very early on. I mean, really, really early on, actually. I remember being a very young child and thinking, this is silly, this is daft. But I liked, I liked the singing. I like singing, yeah, yeah. and I, used to, I was very early on in the choir, and then I was in the choir. I like being an altar boy. It's very good. 
It's very theatrical. Very theatrical up there. Is you know, if I could be the person who rang reason. the bell or shook the incense, marvellous. Yeah. You know, and I'm standing there, and I would be aware. I remember, I remember finding myself as a child, and this is, you know, if there is a God, this is the why I'm, why I'm going to hell. Because even as a child, I sat there with my own vanity and was aware of people admiring my holiness. Do you know what I mean? Yeah. I, as, a, as a good, I was quite a good looking young lad, and I sat, I, I used to go before school to the convent, which was near our house, yeah. and go to, to church at 7 o'clock mass with the nuns right. and I deliberately sat at the front of the church so that when I was <laughs> kneeling there with my hands clasped looking up towards the stained glass window I knew I could feel the adulation <laughs> it burnt into my back <laughs> really I mean it's terribly vain it's terribly you know I mean it's a young boy to have that, that sense but I was sitting there and I could, I could, st- I could kneel for hours yeah. because you know, it was worth it. Yeah. It was worth it because I just knew, hello, Michael. Oh, he's a lovely boy. Hello, Michael. <laughs> You're right there, Michael. Yeah. I'm fine, thank you, Sister Gregorius. <laughs> I'm going to school now and I'm going to work terribly hard. <laughs> and it was just, I was such a little smiley brat. <laughs> but, you know, and that went on, you know, yeah. and people said, oh, lovely boy, don't you sing lovely, Michael? Yeah. I've got a lovely singing voice you know? yeah. and that was what it was all about for me you know. although I think if you're a Catholic it's Vanity. quite healthy to have lost your faith early but I think that Catholics who lose their faith during their teenage oh, years awful. have a very complicated kind of emotional roller coaster to deal with in terms of sexuality and yeah yeah terrible I mean I, th- I still think that that's a, it's, a, it's a curse as far as uh, most adults who've been brought up in Catholic faith because, it, because there's no doubt about it that they absolutely throughout the Catholic faith talk about sex as, as being dirty yep. and rude yep. and, and something you should, you know procreation of children rather you know or an act of love maybe you know that's, that's, that's as as close as they'll get to calling it something nice yeah know. when it's for conception it's God's work but the rest of the yeah, time yeah yeah yeah, yeah. And then, uh, and then saying you can't use contraception because you know then what you're just doing it for pleasure and that's sinful yeah you know, and you just and you are Burdened with that, you fight against it your whole life, sort of going, "Oh, for God, why did you do this to me? Why am I so frightened of it?" Yeah, you know, I was terribly frightened of sex when I was a teenager. Terribly frightened. I had loads of. I could have had a fantastic teenage life. I had lots of mates. But maybe, maybe now looking back on it, it was a blessing. But uh, I had lots of mates who were very successful with girls, and I could have been equally successful. I now. Having, talking to people I knew at the time, or people I was at school with, or girls, they all said, oh, we all fancied you. <laughs> no, never got through to me. Terrified of it. Couldn't go anywhere near them. Even when I was offered the opportunity, I went to Rome <laughs> once. My mother sent me to Rome to a, to a seminary when I was 15 in order to, she thought it would probably push me over the edge and I would become a priest. Because <laughs> you know, there it was, you're near to, you can see the Pope and all those yeah. sort of things. And, Fantastic. And when we turned up there, this it, it was organised through the church. So I went with some people from the church, some old people from the church, and we went off to this place. And I thought, well, I get to go to Italy, and I'd never been abroad, Yeah. really, day trips to France. And so I went, and uh, and we met at the, as we came off the plane, we met up with a whole bunch of people who'd come from Newcastle, who've also come through their Catholic church, but had gone, fantastic. They, they had a chance to have a right old booze up. 
<laughs> and they, you know, and they all turned up with their duty free and their flags. <laughs> First thing they did was set up a bar. Brilliant. We had a, you know, and we had I had a brilliant week. But on the very first day, we there was a swimming pool. At this place we went swimming in this place. There's all these gorgeous Geordie girls who were so <laughs> full of fun and life, and no, they were clearly not scared of sex at all. And I was thinking, oh my god, it's, you know. And then I went to have a shower because we all had to get, I had to help with the kitchen rotor. So I'm in the shower because because it's a, a Catholic. Uh, seminary for training priests there's one shower block and I was in the shower cubicle with a wooden door and there was a little knock on the door and I went hello and this these two voices said who is it and I said I said it's Mike they said they said can we come in (laughs) I said who is it they said it's us from the oh, pool man. I can't do a very good Geordie actually. but you said no and, I, and they said and I said I'm, a, I'm having a shower oh, no. and they went we know <laughs> and I, I didn't let them in you didn't let them in didn't let them in I'm sad for your 15 year old <laughs> you're yeah, sad for my 15 year old you're bloody sad yeah, you should, you should can you be, imagine uh, yeah I, I, I yeah, but I, that's, I, that's I probably and shouldn't I know, imagine if you're all 15 I know exactly but. why you know we're all 15 <laughs> yeah. I know exactly why I didn't let them in because I was terrified but then you but know, that was a result of the whole thing of the. the although I think I think even if you're not a Catholic, if you're a 15 year old boy, you're possibly. probably afraid of sex a little bit. I, possibly, I think I yeah. probably was. Possibly, uh, but I mean, I know I had lots of friends who weren't. No, I mean, I wasn't afraid no. enough to not not go for it when it was offered. But yeah, I did. <laughs> I have been turned down blatant offers. <laughs> anyway, I thought, oh no, oh dear. No, and so uh, would you say that you're an atheist then? Is that what you? And I am. I'm. I'm becoming more and more a militant atheist. This is what. Yeah, because this is what you were saying to me. After yeah, I really am. Though I've gone through my whole life going, no, I don't believe it. I don't. I just don't believe it. But more and more, I feel that there's a there's a need for people to say it's rubbish. It really is rubbish. So I don't want you to tell my children that story. Tell them that story with Father Christmas. Tell them that story with other things. But I do not want you to tell them it's true. And you know, I don't know. It's not something they have to carry on believing. Mm. It's a nice story that teaches you how to be nice to people and says why we should all be nice to each other. But that's obvious, isn't it? Of course, any society would set up those rules. You can't kill people. You can't take people's things. We tell that to our children right off. But we don't have to say, and if you do, you'll burn in hell. <laughs> yeah, it's sure. rubbish. It's 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 a cause of enormous. I mean, I can see that it's the cause of enormous amounts of happiness. I can see that it, it gives a lot of people solace and con- consolation, but also I think it's the cause of, of terrible conflict and wars and, and violence and unfairness and, and bigotry, and I, and I just won't have it. And so then you go, we were so close to having a bloody Mormon president of the United States we who would have, who would have close, used, yeah. used the Bible as a reference point for political for making politics, when without a doubt, there's no question that politics and religion in America are constitutionally supposed to be divided. And yet he stood there on the platform saying he was going to use the Bible to decide policy. Although that said... That should have immediately been banned from, from standing as president. That said, though, you can't actually become a president of, of America without uh, religion. Yeah, yeah, well, exactly, without a Christian religion. It... it you, you can choose which Christian religion yeah, to follow, right. but it has which to is be. why they they use that thing of saying that Obama's um, you know Muslim really underneath it all. Yeah, that's what know. they like to accuse him of. Yeah. yeah.
Yeah, uh, and I, I think that we, that society needs to start enforcing that segregation. You, if you want to believe it, that's fine. You go in your church and you believe it. I'm not stopping people believing in it. I'm not stopping people getting whatever they get out of it. But I will not have them imposing it on people. Can you see what they get out of it? Yeah, I can see it absolutely what they get out of it. Life is very simple when when you know that, and also when you believe in miracles and. And, and prayer, mm. how marvellous, because there are many times in my life, you know, I mean, I actually texted to someone the other day, I said, if I, if I, I said, you won't believe how close I came the other day to praying, but I, then I thought, that won't do any good, and so all I can do is, you know, cross my fingers or something, I do, I'll just really hope, hope, that's all I can do is hope, Yeah. but I can't make it happen, and I can't make it happen by in my head talking to a great being in the sky who's sure. going to go mm, okay on this occasion I'll save that child you know to me that's so arbitrary you know, it's, it's, it's absurd I just it's magic and it just there isn't any yeah. there isn't any it doesn't exist you can't change the future by praying to a, a, an all powerful being Although and, and I'm absolutely convinced of it I'm a militant agnostic so I I refuse to, to decide or to come down on a truth, whatever the truth is, but I, I'm pretty against organised religion, so I can completely yeah. back you. I mean, I, I'm definitely but against church and state being... It's that they one. have it both ways, that's the problem. You say They say, if you pray, God will help you, God will answer your prayers, and then when he doesn't, they say it's God's will. God works <laughs> in mysterious ways, yeah. and you go, well, it's not... It's just unfair, mm. the whole thing. Why would you? Why are you backing a system that is so arbitrary? Yeah, no, sure. I mean, surely better that we put money into into research, science, into finding out why people get ill, into finding ways of stopping people having wars. And that's, that's the, pretty magical. Into, you know, but why, it's true. It's, it's so thing, praying yes, that the there thing. won't be another Yugoslavia. <laughs> Let's find a way of 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 of. of curing society of that ill uh, because I do believe that that's possible I do believe it is possible for society to change and constantly change for the better and so that the ills that exist in society I believe over time human beings have the power and the resources within themselves to make those things go away if someone is a, is a, is a paedophile for example then they are cursed, they're absolutely cursed, their life is destroyed mm. All right, but people very rarely think about that they always think about the lives that they are destroying, and they undoubtedly destroy lives. I agreed. But, but, but their life, from the moment they started to think about sex, was destroyed, because they started thinking about sex with children. Yeah. And yeah. that's what excites them. It's the power of it and all those things. And it's awful. It, it must be awful to be in that situation. And you can tell it's awful because you can see the lengths. To I mean, Jimmy Savile ran a hundred bloody marathons. Why did he run a hundred marathons? Not, <laughs> he didn't run a hundred marathons because he wanted to be fit. Yeah. He didn't run a hundred marathons because he wanted to raise money for charity. You're going to have to cut this out. Uh, no, I'm, I'm not going to have to cut no. this out. He rose, he rode a hundred marathons. Yeah. In order to be able to have sex with children, yeah. There's no. And to, you think, Jesus Christ, <clears throat> what a curse is that in a man's life? His whole life was pointless and obscene. And 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 sadly, it, it, I believe it's something that maybe could have been averted at some point. Somebody could have done something. It wasn't born that way. I don't believe he was born with that desire. 
I believe that that desire happened because of something. Something happened to him that, that made that the central part of his life. And, it's, and, that, and there are people out there who have that curse. And it's very sad. And, and it, you know, we either cut their bollocks off and chuck them in prison forever, mm -hmm. or, or behead them, you know, or, or that's, that's what we do, that's our reaction to it, or we say, how is this happening? Why is this happening? And we research it, we study it properly, and we find out why, and we try to stop that happening. And, and to me, that's, that's, that's the way. Praying isn't going to do it. I don't think praying has ever uh, stopped child abuse. Uh, certainly, it may have uh, yeah, it may well have, may have uh, been, quite a lot of child abuse well probably over the, over the years. Yeah. It's really interesting, though, what you're saying there. I mean, I mean I, 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 I'm not going to cut this out, this out but it's, it's an area that I have to be careful myself when talking about because I work my day job with children. Yeah. And we live in a, a society that doesn't always view people being reasonable as, as a reasonable statement. No. Well, but it is, yeah. but it, but it is something that I want to. I mean, it's something that I'm going to be talking about a little bit. I think in the last of these live conversations with a, a guy called Carl James, who works for the Dialogue Project, which is all about listening. Yeah, right, um, yeah. And one of the things he's been saying recently on Twitter that he'd like to do is he's he's been saying that with the Jimmy, Jimmy Savile case, um, that the, first of all we're not listening to the children involved. No. We're talking about the media, but we're not listening to the, no, to the actual victims. Yeah. But he's also been saying, and we're not listening to child abusers we're not talking to them we're not having the difficult conversations no, 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 why do ever. you do these do things do how can we avoid these things happening again you know actually having conversations with people who repel us yeah. actually might lead us that, I mean that's his big thing that's what he considers dialogue absolutely to be a and way it, and it, of it's an accepted it's an it's absolutely accepted like view in society you hear it said all the time there's nothing to be done for them yeah. you can't cure them that's what is so often you, said yeah. but if that is the case then I'm afraid you have to lock them up forever. Well, also, there are a lot of... You either lock them up or kill them. You know, you do one or the other. Um, but if that's what you believe, that's the, then that's the only conclusion you can come to because you have to protect these children. Absolutely. But I don't believe that. No, well, there are a lot of people as well. There are a lot of people with that inclination who do resist it. There are people who, you know, there's people who have like elastic bands on their, on, around their, really? you know, like, like you would if you had a drug addiction, you might flick that elastic band to, to give you pain yeah, and yeah, to yeah, distract yeah. you. There are people who are, you know, dealing with this every day with the elastic band and, and there are, you know, I mean, there are people who heroically overcome their inclinations yeah. as much as there are people who sadly and tragically for their victims don't overcome those yeah. inclinations See, at my all. My brother asked me a question once which in, in defence of religion, which I thought was a weird question he said to me, you know, if you don't have the Bible and rules by God and, and God there to punish people and to you know, vengeance and things from God you know, what's, to stop, what's to stop people raping people? What's to stop men going around and raping? And I said their own moral standards. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Their own, I'm not going to do that. Yeah. That's wrong. Yeah, you know? I, it is funny, Like I, I think as someone who doesn't believe in, in, in anything, but has quite a strong moral sense, mm. it's, quite fun, like, it's quite interesting when you get into conversations about morality with people with faith, and then, you know, and their, their morality seems to be based around a framework that they've been given. They haven't had to work it out for themselves no. the way the West of us have. But then sometimes that means that they have these kind of elements where they think it's immoral to be gay. Yeah, uh, yeah. Or, you know, whatever, whatever they've been told in their rule book. And they haven't had to feel it out for themselves and, and work out their relationship to the world around them. It's, it's, yeah, yeah. it's, it's a funny thing. I mean, and you get those whole things, you know. They, again, you use, they're using the Bible as a reference. Man shall not lay with man. Father shall not lay with daughter 
water. Yeah. Well, of course not. In a, <laughs> of course not. In a little tribe yeah. in the middle of a desert, yeah. tending sheep. When there was a very we, different. When it's kind very of, important for yeah. people to be breeding. Get on with it. And during that time, you know, and you don't want weird children. So don't sleep with your daughter, and you can't. Don't spend your time shagging that bloke. Yeah. Get on with breeding some children. We need as many children as we can because they die left, right, and centre. It's obvious well, in a society you well. would set up those rules, but that doesn't apply to a modern society, sure. surely. And at that time as well, we were very. Dirty. No, I'm not saying that people can't sleep very. with their daughters, but I'm saying you know, men like <laughs> it's absurd. No. Well, uh, but it's a funny thing as well. Like at that time uh, in human society, we were really dirty. We were like covered in bacteria. Yeah, yeah. Everything about us was filthy. Like you know, for, 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 you know, we are cleaner. We live healthier than we ever have in our oh, lives. Yeah. And so, anal sex was a very different yeah. uh, issue at that time. You know, it did yeah. lead to a lot more. You know, death. Yeah. Uh, although, I mean, there is no no act that isn't completely safe, and obviously, no, but sex can lead to death, yeah. regardless whether it's anal or not. But you would now, then but you would then think that you know that con- condoms would be uh, would be a sensible thing to allow people to use. Yeah, it's funny, yeah. isn't it? Yes. I always thought that mm. that's a funny one. So there I mean, we are. The, the, this is a, it's like a comedy. It's a, <laughs> so this is a, an interesting moment to be to be to be doing this. But this is so. This is the first of these live nights, and. One of the elements of these live, live nights is I'm going to turn over a section of the conversation to the audience oh, to right. ask questions. Although it's not so much <laughs> they've questions. All left. They've gone. Yeah, they've all gone. <laughs> it's just us talking about paedophilia. Yeah. Um, <laughs> but, in a shed. Yeah, in a, <laughs> a greenhouse. It's but obviously, as is a questions and answers <laughs> in a conversational format, I'm uh, suspecting people will be... Uh, less question and answer and more just talk just directly to in. Mike and not just, to me yeah. and I don't have to go no, to me just join in so opening it up is there anything people you've done would very like well I say? think to sit there and not go <laughs> hang on a minute <laughs> yeah I want to know what particularly, it's like particularly, I, mean, yeah. if you, I mean I don't know I never know these I launch into these things I never know if somebody is uh is religious. I was thinking exactly that thing. No, I was tempted a couple of times to weigh in. I just thought, mm. just when you were sort of struggling for a point or something. But yeah. I have to say, bro- broadly speaking, I agreed with more or less everything you said. So. <laughs> Marvellous. <laughs> I'm, I'm Andy, That's by the way. Let's all, come out on Andy. <laughs> Let's all go down the pub. That's <laughs> <laughs> Andy Bodle, who will appear eventually on Getting Better Acquainted. We've done quite an interesting one, actually. I won't spoil it by giving What did your dad think? What did you think? Do you, do you think we've gone, gone too far? No, no, I think you've been very interesting. Yes, I think you, you are, you... He's doing his, he's doing his radio up, voice. You, no, you, you, you brought it. You, you arrived at subjects which I didn't expect. No. And, and I think you dealt with them very interestingly. Yeah, I mean, it's only, it's, I, I'm always very aware in, in life that, that this is my opinion. Yeah. It doesn't make it the only opinion. It also doesn't necessarily mean that I'm right. But for, to, to me, for me, I'm right. This is when I've thought about things, this is where I've got to. This is how I think about things now. Somebody may well come along and say to me, you know, you've really missed a crucial point there. And I'll go, oh, yes. Because I have changed my mind over, over time about things, and I think that's a healthy thing to do. Well, yes. There are very many people who've never changed their mind about anything. So, I, I didn't realise that you um, started out, you know, your first big steps were, were in comedy with, with a lot of my childhood comedy heroes. Oh, right, yeah. Because yeah, I, I was 11 when the young ones came on. Yeah. So even though I didn't know it for a while, I discovered I had a bit of a propensity for comedy at college. And I got into the... Uh, I was at Oxford. And I didn't get into the Oxford Review. I got into the second... Uh, <laughs> the, the, Probably the, better. The, the reserves. And um, as Stuart Lee was actually the year, year or two above me. Yeah. 
Ian Herrick and all that crowd. Fantastic. Yeah. yeah. So, I'm a big admirer. It, it, it must sure. have been. I mean, I guess you've probably talked more about this in the last. We, we, I mean, we really it's covered. Yeah, it's a constantly it, ongoing thing, isn't it? I think you know, <coughs> you get the, it's extraordinary that the uh, the number of people who come out of Oxford and Cambridge. Though, it's it's incredible how they dominate the world. Well, it's in, that is it? very interesting. But also, one of the interesting things about your career is, I mean, you're right, Andy. In the in the first conversation that we had, I mean, Mike has basically been present in you know all of the comedy greats that we'll have known and in fact and we talked a lot about your friend Jeffrey Perkins who's also in that radioactive in fact Matt who's sitting in the audience who may or may not speak I don't know was the one who who suggested that as a topic of conversation and Jeffrey Perkins who has he did everything well there's one of his records up there on the the wall Um, he he basically discovered like if you listen to the first conversation he discovered every pretty much everybody that you know or had a hand in everybody that you know I was listening to that conversation again today in preparation and yes. it's amazing how many how many things he was and I'm sure I didn't mention all of them yeah, no but, you, uh, but I mean I, I, I think he gave the, it a good shot the, yeah, the, the good <laughs> thing with um, the good thing with with comedy is uh, is it's difficult because as you get older I remember when I first went to I've just been invited again to the BBC Light Entertainment Christmas Party, which I think they now call the Talent Party. (laughs) (laughs) We all know that it's still... Because they're not allowed to throw a Christmas party because they can't have the funds for it. So they call it the BBC (laughs) Talent Party, where we gather all the talent in the BBC together and we sort of talk to them about what we might be doing over the next year, and then we have a Christmas party. (laughs) (laughs) They can't call it that because somebody in the Daily Mail or the Telegraph will complain about it. Have you seen how much money... They are for us spending on, on jollies for them. Anyway, so I've been invited, but I first went to the, the, my very first one was in 1980. I went to the first one, and it was in the Paris studios where they used to rec- they recorded so many things in the Paris studios over the years. And the place was full of, of people that uh, it was, you know, Dennis Norton and Kenneth Williams and, and Barry uh, Cryer. Yeah. Yeah. Barry Cryer is still there. <laughs> Barry yeah. Cryer, that's a great. Barry you know, Pryor will I remember, enjoy, yeah, I remember thinking at the time, people there were people like Tim Book Taylor, and, and uh, uh, you know, you thought to yourself, well, they're quite old, aren't they? Mm. I remember thinking, you know, we're the new, young, vibrant comics and everything, and thinking, what if they get our stuff? <laughs> and now I'm sort of aware that, that there may well be, every now and again, I bump into some new, young comic who's sort of on the up, and, and I'd say to them how funny I thought their thing was, that they may have done it all show on some channel or somewhere I said that was great that brilliant gag that about oh, fantastic I love that routine about that and the, they're amazed that I've watched it mm. and that I get it yeah, <laughs> and I sort true. of and then I sort of go well actually although you, you, you just think of older comedy as being not as radical as you you think you're the one that's, that's breaking new ground but often you're not but there was the, I, th- I got the feeling that there was a bit of a radical departure there sort of from the end of the 70s to, to the 80s with a you know alternative humor I think so yeah I think I think all that almost deliberately although, in although respect, it, almost well, it is interesting funny. it is interesting how that that um, I, I mean I think it was a period in itself I'm not sure that it was a period that changed comedy I think it happened in itself and then in a way was uh, superseded by stand-up and stand-up is a very different thing I remember in the mid 80s, I went to. I was in America, and I went to the comedy store in Los Angeles. Oh wow! And the comedy store in Los Angeles had, you know, had some amazing performers. There, you know, but um, but they were incredibly polished. They were very funny. They they did 
routines about you know watching the telly or going to the thing and they had a whole sequence of routines that they reeled off very professionally and and full of very funny stuff and and they would they were joke tellers really but in the form of uh, anecdotal jokes yeah. but very skillful and now if you look at uh, stand up comedy to a large extent all the big successful ones the ones who play arenas and those, that's what they do you know, I mean, Lee Evans still a bit more, he does a lot more physical comedy, but he's still basically telling stories about my baby, my daughter, you see the way she does. But he's still talking about his family and, uh, you know, you trying to change nappies or whatever. Eddie Izzard is very much routines polish, isn't he? Yeah, yeah. I mean, uh, although it's, uh, it's interesting how he goes about the process of, of developing those routines. You know, mm. I mean, I, 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 I bumped into a fellow called Peter Bennett Jones, who was his manager and his and is his manager and he used to run as a director of Tiger Aspect and he's a lovely lovely man but he's retired from it now I think but uh, he still manages but uh, he in Oxford I was in a pub and he's I said oh Peter and he lives in Oxford so I thought he just popped in he said oh I'm here but Eddie's doing the show over the, over the road and I said oh right he said come over and say hello and I knew Eddie Izzard I knew Eddie Izzard from when he first started his club in um Right next to the, the the Raymond Review Bar in Soho, he took on a tiny little venue and just did stand up very unsuccessfully. Yeah, and uh, and then I'd, I'd known him, and at the time he was trying to make a living, and he used to come to lots of auditions that I was at. And I'm, he did tell me years later that he, he he's. His heart used to sink whenever I came into the room. Because <laughs> I was very successful at getting commercials. So I, think I had the right face, and he never did, you know. And it's rather nice of him to sort of remember it, even, I think. But he's very—he's a very, very nice man. Uh, but but he's he, he really is, interesting as a stand-up. Uh, there's a he does develop his stuff. He does still put in lines all the time. I think, yeah, there, well, there's a re- recent episode of a, a podcast called The Nerdist where um, Eddie Izzard, Eric Idle, Billy Connolly, yeah. and a woman that I sh- did, was very funny, but I didn't recognise the name of. Who is uh, she? American. No, she's English, actually. Oh, right. Um, but they've been doing a show together, those... those yeah. they, and uh, it's really interesting hearing, you know, Billy Connolly talk about his attitude to stand-up compared yeah, yeah. to Eddie Izzard talking about his attitude to stand-up. And, of course, Eric Idle is a writer yeah. who tried a bit of stand-up at certain points, and it's really interesting hearing their... But, I mean, I, I think that, 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 that we've now gone down that route, that we've gone... The ones who are successful and make the money are, are those really slick really tight routines where they just talk and it's, there's, a, there's a laugh every... And that's why Stuart Lee is so different, because he can talk for ten minutes and not a laugh. In fact, just with people being uncomfortable. <laughs> but the payoff for that un- being uncomfortable is so glorious. Isn't it? I think the thing that is you that can die of laughter with him. You know? yeah. I mean, he's just he's amazing. But it, there aren't many people like Stuart Lee left, and there were a lot. Around the time of his, true, the early actually. 80s, there were a yeah. lot. There were... People who used to, there were a lot of people who, who the main aim was not necessarily to, to make people laugh, but to, but, but to get a point over. But I think that will come back again. What begins as radical ends up being the orthodoxy, and yeah. then people have to push back against it, I guess. And you go the, somewhere else. There was an act there was an act that we could never work out if she was deliberately being funny or not. <laughs> uh, we're called Hermine, who used to come on stage with a berry on, and we never even knew if she was French or not. Nobody ever. <laughs> spoke to her but she'd turn up and she'd come and she sat on a stool and then sang French torch songs really badly <laughs> I mean awful so out of tune 
but very, very seriously. And uh, some people used to just go, oh, get her off. And <laughs> other people would weep with laughter. There's, there was a similar guy when I, I used to try out a little bit of stand-up and there was a guy on the same night as me on a very, very small club called Jimbo. Does it ring a bell? Jimbo. Jimbo. Anyway, this guy mm. would just shamble onto the stage, mumble, not really say anything, and he got booed off within about a minute. Mm. Anyway, I gave up stand-up not too long afterwards. Well, I kept going to see comedy, and one day I saw he was on the bill. Yeah, <laughs> there, there he was again. And ten years later, he was doing exactly the same thing, but with timing and polish, and and suddenly people were falling over themselves. Yeah. And he just stuck at it, stuck at yeah, it. And it and does take that. It really, it really all, all stand-up yeah. comedians say that, that, that you have to keep, you have to make so many mistakes before you get it right. Mm. You know, you, you have to go through that process of, of learning how to do it and learning who what your performance is going to be as well, I think. Well, this is the yeah. damaging thing for stand-ups these days. I did a conversation with an up-and-coming stand-up called Ben Target, who I, or Target, depends on how you want to pronounce mm. <laughs> And... You know, we were, we were talking about the fact that now, you know, with, mo- with mobile phones and things like this, the mistakes get captured. And before yeah. comedians could make all yeah. their mistakes for years and years and years, get good, then get into the public eye. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Then but, you get. But you don't have that luxury now. It, no. Everything's recorded. Everything gets out there. And it's, yeah, it's, it's difficult. Different. Though. I don't know if they're still there. Those those acts. There was a there was an act, but my favourite of the of the really bizarre acts was a man who whose act consisted of coming on stage and saying, ladies and gentlemen, my interpretation of diarrhoea. And he would then, very, very slowly, eat a whole bag of those chocolate eclair chewy things, but not swallow, and would be stuffing them in till his face was completely full of these things, and desperately trying to chew. And when he got to the right consistency, he stood over a bucket... And spat it out. <laughs> now I have to say that it doesn't. But I, you don't laugh so much at the spitting out, but the, he but it's the, it's the fact that he's taking so long to do it. So you knew yeah, what he was going. Another gonna, one in. You knew what he was going to do. Yeah. Don't we got the joke? We got it. We know what you're going to do. And he would just hang on. It just take about ten minutes. That was his act. See, I'm just wishing that I could book all of these acts for stand-up tragedy. Does anybody else have any kind of things that they wanted to ask Mike about? Maybe radio-related, I guess. Some of you might have those kind of questions. Everyone's looking a little bit nervous. Yeah. <laughs> Don't know, let's not get on to politics. When this goes out, I'll be, I'm going to be on tour. I'm doing, I'm doing Yes Prime Minister. Oh, yes. And I'm going to be doing the Prime right. Minister. You'll be the so Prime Minister. I'm going to be the Prime Minister. And I'm going to bloody change things, I'll tell you. (laughs) (laughs) Unfortunately, I'm stuck with the script that means I have to say the same thing. Which Prime Minister are you going to be? Are they going to advise you? Are you going to be a sort of nebulous... There isn't, it it isn't anyone... model yourself on anything? It's an extraordinary play. It seems to work and people think that it's being updated all the time or being changed and lines are being put in. And it's hardly changed since he wrote it about four years ago. And it's basically... It just keeps... Seems to apply. People sort of see the, the parallels. And it's an adaptation of the of the series, isn't it? Yeah, yeah. it's a, yeah, it's from from way back. I remember watching that series, but yeah. maybe on repeats. It gets confusing, doesn't it? Once things get into the repeat, repeat <laughs> circulation, like different generations remember from their childhood the same show because it was on yeah. repeats. So, was there any any further questions or conversational points? 
Yeah, a question kind of relating to what we're doing tonight as well, mm. and the, this this group sort of listening, interviewing thing. And this is kind of from in the dark. Yes, when you walked in this evening, I recognised you because I had been to a, a theatre recording of a radio BBC radio comedy. Oh right, yeah, it's Old Harry's Game. Oh yes, I do Old Harry's Game. Yeah, that yeah. Was I never got around to that. <laughs> <laughs> and that's it's a, being in the audience and then listening to it subsequently, like you were saying, you know, you don't bother listening to it because you were there when it happened. Yeah, yeah. And I've had the similar situation in reverse as well, where I have a ticket but I don't go along because I'll just hear it on the radio. But oh, you're saying it's a great, it's good fun, the, the old Harry's Game recordings are great. Absolutely. They're really good. Andy's so skilled that he's been doing it so long. He tells a fantastic joke in his warm-up. <laughs> he, says, he's, he says, uh, he tells it every time. I used to always tell a joke at the beginning of Radioactive, but he, he always tells this joke where he says, he says, yeah, we've been having some building work done on the, on the house recently. He said, and um, he said, uh, my little daughter, she was uh, she was on holiday and they're all building away and everything and they said do you want to give us a hand so she went yeah alright and they're really nice these boats they're looking after her and um, you know uh, she's sweeping up the dust and things and they give her a little dustpan and brush and, and they were very sweet to her and at the end of the week they gave her a little brown envelope and uh, said yeah and she said what's that and they said that's your wages <laughs> and she went oh so I thought well that's sweet isn't it so the next day, I took I went to the, I took her to the bank. I said, "Come on, go to the bank, put your wages in." So we went to the bank, and I said, she's got a little account, you know. She puts her birthday money in and everything, and she went up to the counter and she handed over the brown envelope, and the person took out the five pound note and said, "What's that? Is that birthday money?" And she said, "No, that's my wages." And they went, "All oh, right, where'd you get that from?" She said, "I've been helping the builders all week, been tidying up, and they get my wages." She went, oh, that's brilliant. Are you going to help them next week? She said, no, they fucked up on the bricks. <laughs> <laughs> Apparently it's true. And he always says, and he always says afterwards, he said, now the, problem, when, the thing about that story is, he said, uh, I, I was standing there thinking, oh, my God, my little daughter's just said, fuck in a bank. He said, and then I'm thinking, they didn't tell me they fucked up on the bricks. <laughs> <laughs> so I mean, so when you were talking about the experience of watching a live recording of radio, I mean, uh, yeah, well, so we're, within the dark, we're very interested in the, the group dynamic. Yeah. How a group of people listening to a radio piece makes it seem different. Yeah. To because there's things I know there's stuff in here that I've listened to by myself. I thought nothing great. You come in here with four or five other people and you listen to it together and actually people are reacting to different parts. Yes. You react and to sometimes people... Yeah, it's, it's interesting. If you listen, do you listen to radio plays as well? Or do you, uh, occasionally, you know, occasionally. Not a lot. Not a lot. Because I always think that's a very solitary process. Yeah. More solitary than the comedy programmes even. You know, comedy programmes you can have on people having dinner or you're all sitting around and or you might listen to it on, on as a group because you all like it. Oh, we like this. Let's put it on. When I was young, I, I think radio comedy was very much a group activity. I remember Sunday afternoons, Clitheroe Kid, we used to all deliberately listen to it. We would put it on and sit there and listen to it, like the television. But I don't think that happens quite so much now, because people, people listen to everything in their own time, don't they? Yeah, they well, that's what po- I play as podcasts. Well, that's what podcasting is. As a medium, yeah. it's, it's really about people listening on their own whenever they want, yes. which is, in a, in a way, a reflection of and the way the culture start- has gone. Yeah, and yeah. stopping and starting whenever they want to. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. 
Yeah, absolutely. So, I mean, how have you found this experience then in terms of a listening experience? I mean, I definitely think it's changed the way that we've conversed. I definitely feel like the way we've conversed today it was, is very different from when we were sitting in your front room. Yeah, although it got, it got more like like it. I think we yeah. relaxed into it a yeah. bit more. You know? There was definitely a moment yeah, when it felt like we were just the only people here. Yeah. And then, then people would move their leg and I was like, oh, yes, I remember. Yeah. For me, it's, for me actually, I think it's, you haven't sort of interfered with me too much you know that, that's, I think it's rather nice you know I, I expected to be more aware of, of, of you as an audience but I don't think I, I think I only looked at you a few times during another the ten minutes and we'd have been in there yeah I know <laughs> and I, well, I think you did really well to, you, to you guys not. were really useful in terms of like fact checkers and stuff like that was it was useful to have people to just like because every, every conversation that I do on the show there's a moment where me or the guest will be reaching for a fact that yeah, we won't yeah. be able to get and it's just because it's, it's in Names, the moment you're just stuck you know. oh, speaking of which this is a glass house because the greenhouse is named after the, the colour of the things in it Ah, okay. Oh. And, I like Rick, and uh, Ricky Gervais was on XFM, not LBC. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> there you go. Nice. Yeah. Good work. Okay. Lawyers stand down. Yeah. XFM, right? That's what, yeah, yeah. XFM is is more of his flavour for the start of his career, anyway. It's funny, um, isn't it? I bumped into uh, Ricky Gervais at a again BBC Christmas party. They're all there. Everybody goes BBC Christmas party, and they just done the first series of The Office. And, uh, and I said to him, oh, I think it's really funny. It's such a funny programme. He said, have you worked in an office? And I said, no. He said, oh. I, well, we didn't think that people would get it if they hadn't worked in an office. And he really meant it. They, did. Mm. they, they obviously thought they were writing a little cliquey, mm. sort of specific comedy yeah. for people who would know that situation. That's interesting. And he, uh, I think, you know, I was, I said, Do you re- what, really? You didn't think it would be other people would get it and he said no no we really thought you know anybody who's worked in one of those boring offices will understand this but we didn't think everybody else would it's funny how you, you when you write comedy or do comedy you never quite know how much how many people are going to get it you know, sometimes it's quite nice to, to be uh, very exclusive and only have a few people that get it but generally I should imagine uh, looking at Ricky Gervais's bank account yeah I'm sure he's happy that everyone got it this is a man who's appearing in a comedy about being the Prime Minister how many people have been Prime Minister (laughs) (laughs) that's my chance so did you as an audience find it frustrating that you were listening because a lot of the time people sort of when they don't listen to my show but they're but I'm talking about the show and saying do you want to listen to my show people are like I don't want to I don't want to sit there listening to some people talk Talking, and if I can't join in, and this is like the most extreme version of that, is, <laughs> that you're literally in the room with us and you can't join in. I mean, was it frustrating? Or, I mean, did it? No, everyone's. You just got to sw- switch a button in your head, really. Like, yeah. It's like, oh, no, I'm, I'm not actually. You're like, just pretend you're watching it on a screen. Yeah. Well, that's cl- I'm glad that that was the case. So, the last thing I ask people is do you have anything that you want to plug? Which the first time round, you didn't. So no, no. No, not really. I mean, I'm never, I, I'm never particularly tied into things making money as a result of me plugging them. You know? <laughs> yeah, that's right. So I mean, I, it, it, they pay you to, I, to do, record it. I've then done it. You've, had, I've you've done already it. got the money. It's, it's, uh, why should I make yeah. them money? <laughs> <laughs> Fair enough. Yeah. I mean, I, I don't. I, I, I often forget. I think I've said this to you before, but I, I, I honestly have. I had many years of going into auditions where people say, "What have you been doing recently?" and and uh, and and I struggled to remember. <laughs> I really, I go, "Oh, um, oh God, I did a," and then somebody will 
later on I walk out and say, oh, I did a television series. Oh, I forgot about that. And I, don't, I really, I do the work. Is that because you're looking forward to Yeah, yeah, I'm thing. a forward looker. Okay. I, I do, the, do the work and then I sort of forget about it. Yeah. You know? And then other people say to me, oh, I saw you in a sense with you. And say, well, what was that? Oh, yeah, no, I did that last year. Oh, I'd forgotten about that. When was that on? Yeah. And I forget about the work quite often. That's interesting. You know? I mean, I, I remember the, doing it yeah. and the people and those sort of things, but, uh, but actually the, the programme itself or the radio programme or the, uh, I'd, uh, I'd sort of gone in, in my mind. Well, probably when we put this out, you'll be doing Yes, Prime Minister. Yeah. So uh, that's, I guess that's a, a, an accidental plug. That you there we are. Then. And then there's the I Arches as well, which yeah, that needs plugging. It's on go hardly boom, anyone listen to the Arches. Yeah, but you know, I was saying earlier <laughs> that, uh, that they told uh, somebody, I heard somewhere that the Arches regularly gets seven and a half million listeners. I'm not surprised. Yeah, that's, an, that's extraordinary. They, they are. They are. A, uh, yeah, they're a big operation. That's amazing. I don't but know what that's worldwide, isn't it? Yeah, but then you know, there isn't very much competition that they have. No, I suppose not. But you not know, really. I mean, uh, well, only because n- no other radio station. You know, here we go again. License fee. No other radio station put, makes. Now you think of the amount of. L- of, of drama that is produced from Radio 4 on a daily basis on a daily basis there's the Archers yeah. everybody goes well they do the Archers what else you say well they do there's usually a play or a comedy thing first thing in the morning there's 10 15 there's a little 15 minute drama which involves there's always that 15 minute then at, at just after 2 there's one for there's a 45 minute full drama sure. a full drama production every, this day, show, yeah. every day every day and then in the evenings, quite often, there's, a, there's, a, there's one at uh, 11 o'clock. There'll be another drama. And then there's the quiz shows and the comedies and all those. They're all being recorded and all being put out live every day. At the weekends, they have a whole sort of two-hour drama session. They, they have do. the classic dramas. They have the, it's unbelievable output of, of, of drama. And See, as far as the acting profession is concerned... I don't think we'd survive without Radio 4. See, it's this, just is a, this is what happens every time I say to someone, if, is there something to plug in? They say no. And then... I'm plugging we Radio end up 4. As, exactly, yeah. we end up in a conversation and then suddenly there's a plug. Yeah. So, you know, um, so Radio, Radio 4, 4. Back the BBC, support the BBC. And, and it survives on a tiny percentage of the BBC's income. And um, if anyone's listening from Radio 4, um, <laughs> I have a slight history of writing uh, radio drama. I was Sony uh, nominated. <laughs> Thank you very much for coming, everybody. <laughs> uh, and uh, if you want someone to write some kind of new drama that maybe uh, interests people in a different way, different. Uh, I'm being told to cut this bit uh, <laughs> by somebody who I will remain nameless, but I'm happy to. Uh, <laughs> To, to say to Radio 4 please hire me to make stuff but don't make me make it no, no, Radio 4 to be. Radio 4 people <laughs> Radio 4 people make programs they don't listen no uh, <laughs> fair enough let's hope that's true for my future <laughs> career and so the last thing that I ask people to do is to say goodbye to the audience we're actually in the room with you oh yes yeah. I'm going to walk around and shake them by the hand <laughs> <laughs> thank you very much for coming thank you thank you very much enjoy thank you there we are and for the listener at home why? <laughs> Why? 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 Goodbye. <laughs> you can find Getting Better Acquainted on Twitter, at UBA Podcast. You can find it on Facebook. It's Getting Better Acquainted. Have a search on Facebook and like it. 
or you can find it on the website www.gettingbetteracquainted.co.uk You can also subscribe by searching on iTunes and subscribing to us that way and on the Stitcher Smart Radio app that you can download for your smartphone from stitcher.com or through the App Store. There are lots of ways to get better acquainted.